Okay, so good evening and welcome to, to this DIJ Roundtable. Uh, my name is Stefan Heinrich. I'm a Senior Research Fellow here at the DIJ and Head of the Social Science Section. I would like to welcome you also on behalf of Franz Waldenberger, our Director, and everyone at the DIJ to this very special event. This is a special event in more than one respect. First of all, it is jointly organized by three institutions, the DIJ, the Le Hesse, and the Japanese-German Center Berlin. These three institutions got together last year to organize a first event that looked at the link between growing political discontent and changes in the labor market. The success of that workshop motivated us to continue the conversation, and so this year we are meeting in Tokyo, and part of the proceedings are this roundtable. Um, just as a way of introduction, um, as you can see, we, th we believe that the comparison of these three countries um, is quite interesting. Um, even though discussions may be similar in many respects, especially after the global financial crisis, the starting points and also the trajectories of the three countries seem to be quite different uh, before and after the crisis. Um, they stand for very different institutional and political traditions, the three countries, for different regulatory approaches, uh, but also have um, fared differently when it comes to labor market performance in recent years. Um, as, you may know, as you may know, our discussion... Uh, goes beyond this roundtable. We are holding a workshop at the DIJ today and tomorrow discussing uh, topics related to this. And the starting point uh, for both events is the observation that since the global financial crisis, there seems to, been, to have been a shift in public opinion, also in public perception of labor market and labor market policy. Um, just to illustrate this very briefly, if you remember the 1994 jobs study by the OECD, which is often described as a key document of the worldwide dissemination of the flex security approach, characterized high employment protection and minimum wages as impediments to employment. This has influenced discussions in a number of countries and has inspired, as we all know, uh, many structural labor market reforms in the past decades. Um, this is subsumed very often under the term labor market liberalization, and Kathleen Seelen, a professor of political science at the MIT uh, and a very prominent voice in the scholarly debate on liberalization, <laughs> has argued, however, that liberalization does not necessarily lead to more inequality. Some countries, in particular in Scandinavia, seem to have been able to liberalize while maintaining social cohesion and inequality to a much greater extent than other countries. Um, she also believes that governments do actually enjoy considerable leeway in how they implement and influence processes of liberalization. So I should just show you the whole slide. Um, so for Thailand, the fact that some countries, including the three we are discussing tonight, are apparently dealing with more inequality due to liberalization is at least part due to faulty government policy. Nevertheless, if we look at what has happened since 2008 in the three countries, one may wonder whether policymakers are actually starting to agree with her to some extent. We've seen the introduction of the statutory minimum wage in Germany in 2015, the unveiling of a major policy package called Workstyle Reform in Japan in 2016, which promises, among many other things, no less than to eradicate unequal treatment between standard and non-standard workers. And just this Monday, the French, gov French government announced it would raise the minimum wage significantly um, from January as one measure to address the protest of the so-called Yellow Vests. All of these examples could be hints that policymakers since 2008 
are under particular pressure to justify and adjust their reform agendas for the labor market. Um, so tonight we want to discuss to what extent that this is actually true and to what extent the Lehman shock has been uh, a turning point in labor politics. Um, I'm sorry. Yeah. To do so, we have invited three very renowned and highly respected scholars. Um, and it's a great honor to welcome uh, Bruno Amable, Paul Marx, and Marie Miura. And I would like to thank them all for agreeing to participate in this panel and this roundtable. Um, we asked them a number of uh, questions to consider in their presentations. Questions like, to what extent liberalization has been implemented before 2008 and uh, how they would assess it. Another question is what they believe has changed since 2008. Um, are we perhaps witnessing a comeback of institutions um, that have been associated with French, German, and Japanese non-liberal non capitalism? Um, how has public sentiment changed regarding policies uh, associated with li liberalization? And is labor market liberalization politically still more or less feasible than before. And finally, are we seeing a stronger or weaker role of the state in regulating employment re relations and working conditions since the crisis? Um, before we begin the discussion, allow me to briefly introduce tonight's panelists. Um, Bruno Armable will talk about the case of France. France. He's professor of economics at the University of Geneva, an expert on the varieties of capitalism institutions and their influence on innovation and industry. More recently, he has expanded his research interests to labor markets, European structural reforms, and employment policy. Speaking for, or rather about Germany, will be Paul Marx. He's a professor of political science and socioeconomics at the University of Duisburg-Essen, and also affiliated with the Danish Center for Welfare Study, Studies and the ISA Institute for Labor Economics. His interests include social and political inequality, <coughs> political behavior, and welfare state in labor market analysis. Um, Mari Miura will discuss the case of Japan. She's a professor of political science here at Sofia University, which is right next door. Um, she's also an academic advisor to the All-Partisan Caucus for the promo Promotion of Gender Equality in Politics. Um, she's very well known for her research um, on the issue of gender equality, but also for, for her advocacy on that issue. In addition, she is very well known for her extensive work on labor politics and labor market reforms in Japan. Her book, Welfare Through Work, which has been mentioned a couple of times today, Conservative Ideas, Partisan Dynamics, and Social Protection in Japan, is regarded as one, <coughs> if not the best, book on labor market politics in Japan. And um, again, thank you very much for, for being here, and I would like to invite Mari Miura to give the first presentation. Well... Hello, everyone. Uh, Stefan, thank you very much for a very warm introduction. Um, today, I'm going to talk about uh, basically responding to all the questions that Stefan laid out one by one. And my role today is that uh, I give you the broad brush picture of what, uh, what, uh, what was the state of the liberalization before and after a 2008 uh, Lehman crisis or what a financial crisis. And so we're going to start the story from what had happened before the, uh, the what, what was the labor market liberalization before 2008. And the liberalization has been already started in the 80s, but accelerated basically in the 1990s. 
And in order to understand the pace and also content of the liberalization, <laughs> we basically need to understand what sort of politics and also power relationship has shifted. Behind the liberalization, we observe that there's a, a particular power shift has occurred in the Japanese policymaking system, which is uh, the change from the three-party decision-making to a more centralized decision-making or top-down decision-making led by prime minister's office. And we observed this kind of change started from basically uh, from 1995. And uh, before that, uh, all the labor market issues has been, had been discussed under the uh, jurisdiction of Ministry of Labor, and there is an advisory board within it, and there was a three-party decision-making. So the labor and also employers and the public interests are all present, and uh, they, that, that was the, uh, the locus of decision-making. However, starting from 1995, there is a new sort of the panel has has been set up by the leadership of Prime Minister and also Prime Minister's office. And these are ad hoc panels uh, set up uh, under the Prime Minister's office, and they try to sort of get the uh, decision-making uh, power from the, uh, from the three-party decisions. And if you look at the membership of these two locuses of the decision-making, we can see that a labor union used to uh, participate in the tripartite decisions, but that's that's not been the case for the, this uh, top-down decision making. And sometimes uh, there is a one uh, labor representation, but sometimes there is no labor uh, representation in the, the panels which discuss uh, labor market liberalization. And because of the change in the labor, uh, because of the change of the membership, of course, the, the result of the policy making has also shifted toward liberalization. And uh, instead, but we don't we don't see much uh, the participation of labor unions. But instead, uh, what is particular is that. Uh, the, there is a new type of interest has been more represented in a new uh, decision making, which is uh, human resource businesses. So those are uh, a new kind of business. They are not employers. They are like uh, the agency of like uh, dispatch workers or uh, temporary staff uh, workers, and also they are the one who get benefit from labor mobility. So like uh, they, they, they give us uh, some uh, advice of, of recruitment and also uh, advice for the career formation. So this particular business becoming gain more power and power in the decision making which push forward the liberalization before 19, uh, 2008 liberalization. In the early 1990s and also 2000, there are lots of issues uh, that have been covered by a new type of policy making. And, but most are basically seeking various ways to uh, reduce labor costs because employers are really pushing hard to reduce labor costs. And in order to achieve the labor cost reduction, there are numerous ways to achieve that. One was the uh, increase of non-regular workers, obviously, because uh, there's a huge wage gap between regular and also non-regular workers. But also easing or working of regulation is another uh, the, 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 the topic. And also another topic was the employers try to ease the dismissal. But what is interesting is that even the employers push hard to, to easing of dismissal, there is a, some kind of counterback coming from labor unions, and eventually uh, this uh, attempt was failed, and dismissal law was actually strengthened uh, in 2003 in Japan. So if you look at the dualization discourse, uh, we can see that for regular employment, a dismissal was much more strengthened, but there is a huge wage gap between regular and non-regular workers. So we'd like to see what happened after 2008. And there is a 
a little bit of change, but not because of financial economic crisis, but because of the change of the government. That's what I'm going to argue. Because we had a DPJ government between 2009 and 2012. That's a part, the, the power alternation from the ruling Liberal Party to uh, sort of centrist to center-left parties of DPJ. And before this kind of uh, this, uh, power alternation, there's a Lima shock was hit in Japan and all over the world. And after, uh, after the Lima shock, there is a, uh, the new incident, which probably you know, uh, that was a 10th city of jobless emerged uh, in the new eve of 2008-2009. Uh, this 10th uh, city of jobless emerged just in front of the Minister of uh, Labor and Welfare. So that became a big, uh, become a sort of a political scandal to the ruling party. And that's the moment that people realized that inequality and also gap uh, has been emerged. And then uh, there are lots of jobless problem, jobless people actually and appeared and become a social problem. And that was the first time that all the unions, including communists and also centrist Rengo, uh, actually there's a strong rivalry between communist-oriented unions and more centrist unions, but in order to strengthen the protection of dispatching workers, there are some sort of de facto alignment, uh, including all the unions. That was a sort of the, uh, the, uh, the result of the, uh, the world financial crisis. And be, partly because of the world financial crisis and the government started to strengthen the government had to strengthen the protection toward workers, and then there was coincidence of the birth of the DPJ government at the time. And because the DPJ government is more, compared to the ruling party, is more, you know, social democratic oriented, depending on where you stand, but it's more, it's a centrist slash social democratic. So the DPJ government tried to strengthen, uh, you know, tried to uh, uh, strengthen more redistribution under its government. But for many reasons, uh, there is not much uh, result, and then the DPJ government had to step down after three years of government, and the administration or the ADP committee-led government uh, regained the power in 2012, and there is another policy return. So there is not, the cle there is not like a clear change before and after 2008, but because of the government uh, change, we see that there's another round of neoliberalization has been taking place under administration. But if you look at the discourse of administration, I think there are two interpretations, and some people think that there's more protection uh, under administration, and especially like uh, if you look at the, the women's empowerment, and also if you look at the minimum wages or, or work, work style, work style uh, reform, or like uh, equal pay for equal work, there's lots of nice words coming from the Abe administration. So if you hear the discourse of the administration, some people might interpret it that uh, sort of income-led growth or like a more protection or inclusive growth. This, this new kind of growth model has been instituted under administration. But, but if you look at the more reality and if you look at the wages, uh, actually there is a more return to neoliberal reform that's uh, what's actually taking place. And this is a real wage index and there are many Kind, many, lots of indicators to, to describe the Japanese current state of uh, economic performance. Mm -hmm. And if you look at the GDP, the nominal GDP, and Japan is growing finally, catching up, and then there is a second largest economic 
growth after the Izanagi uh, economic uh, growth. So if you hear that kind of story, yes, Japanese economy has been expanding, but if you look at the real, uh, not nominal GDP, but real GDP, that, that actually Japanese growth has been quite modest. And uh, But what the indicator that we need to look at is probably the wage, uh, the real wage index rather than unemployment or employment index because uh, because partly because the, uh, the population is shrinking in Japan, there is a labor shortage in some sectors, uh, and employment rate is, has been very low, and the highest point was only 5.4% anyway. So unemployment is, unemployment is never been really the political issue in Japan. Um, so the real issue is actually wages, and it's, it's so much easier compared to Germany or France to cut down wages in Japan. There, there are many ways to cut down wages. Um, so the, the, the shifting from regular to non-regular worker is one way, but also there are lots of wage, uh, lots of like, sort of non-payment of overtime work. That's another way. So, uh, so if you look at the real wage index, Japan is the only country among these uh, G7 countries, or not only G7, but among affluent democracy, which has been experiencing a uh, wage decrease. Um, so that's, that's in Japanese. So that's the, at the point of comparison is 1997. So, so basically 1997, 1998, there was a peak of the wage level in Japan, and since then there is a gradual decline of wages. So we need to understand why this kind of wage reduction has been actually possible politically. And in order to understand that, we need to look at the changes in the decision-making and also this exclusion of labor unions, particular in the decision-making process. So I need to talk a little bit more about Abe's reform. Uh, is it past shifting reform or not? And past shifting here, I mean that, uh, bec uh, like some sort of like an income-led growth. Because after Lehman crisis or after financial uh, crisis, there's some sort of a change in the discourse, as Stefan described in the beginning. Uh, maybe we need to move on from the neoliberalization, but move on to more like income-led growth or inclusive growth, or like a, something like a. Uh, millennial goal or SDGs, and uh, those discourse has been around since then. Uh, but I don't hear at all like income-led growth in Japan. Still, uh, people, are, uh, especially the government, has been talking about the growth-first model. We need to focus. We need to have growth by no matter means. And once the growth is achieved, and then there might be some sort of a trickle-down effect by uh, become later, and then the wages might rise up. So that's the discourse has been dominant, even uh, Abe government. And even though Abe government tried to actually step in the decision-making of the minimum wage, and the minimum wage has been strengthened to some extent, uh, but but, but it's not like a strong like income-led growth, as you see, because the actual wage level has been stagnating. So we don't see the discourse of income-led growth, and we don't see the reality of income growth in Japan, because the business model has been very much entrenched in the low-cost model. Uh, many of you probably come from European countries, and um, the, partly because the yen is not strong these days, uh, you probably think that uh, Tokyo is quite cheap, 
to buy uh, food or get a taxi or the public transport. It's not been the case 10 years ago. Tokyo was one of the most expensive cities. You know, when I traveled to Paris or London, you know, I felt kind of, you know, I might, you know, I was able to, you know, enjoy my, uh, uh, the strong, uh, yen. But that's not the case anymore. The Tokyo is definitely one of the cheapest cities among, uh, affluent democracies, basically because labor cost has been cut down. Uh, and, and business seems to me that they are stuck with this, uh, the low labor cost model and they can't really move on to like a high quality, high wage, uh, income led growth model yet. And Abe, of course, is getting support from business sector, and the business sector has been entrenched with this kind of model, even though the business and Abe government try to push up uh, the Japanese economy to, to deal with a new industrial uh, uh, technological change, which is called Industry 4.0 in Germany, uh, Society 5.0 in Japanese. Uh, th th there are lots of talks and lots of policies, but actually it's not really catching up with the pace. And if you look at the women's employment in particular, yes, the uh, government is uh, putting lots of emphasis on uh, increasing women labor force, and which is actually succeeding because the uh, the labor force has been shrinking. Uh, many women had uh, able to stay in the labor market. So if you just look at the unemployment or employment rate or labor force participation, uh, the gender gap has been narrowed, and then more and more women stay in the labor market. But if you look at the wages or if you look at the gender gap, including the incidence of part-time job, or if you look at the women in the corporate board, or if you look at the women in managers, all these indexes suggest that women employment has not been achieved yet. And, uh, but Abe's discursive taxes seems to be winning. And if I talk to my student, everybody said that, well, because of economics, I'm getting a good job, and the Japanese economy is, is so good, and then I don't hear any sort of criticisms coming from students, or maybe from main media either. So discursive tactics... Uh, of using economic, uh, uh, economic empowerment of women or equal pay for equal work or raising minimum wages or reducing working hours. So those nice words to give more protection to workers uh, seems to be working. So it doesn't in, uh, invite any sort of criticism uh, to uh, the, the Abe government's way of governing. Uh, but at the same time, there is no alternative because the DPJ government failed so badly and there's no public support or public trust uh, regaining to our DPJ government or some other, uh, opposition parties. So voters think that there's no alternative but uh, Abenomics. So there is a sort of the tacit public support to what Abe is doing. But if you look at the labor unions and labor movement, uh, we observe the further weakening of labor movement. Um, so in 2008, I, I talked about the tensity of jobless, and at, at the time, that was a sort of a peak of social movement in Japan, in a sense, uh, because the Ringo used to sort of change its tactics from insider politics to outsider politics, starting from 2001 to 2002. Now before that, Ringo was a sort of insiders, meaning that they preferred to negotiate with the governing uh, government in order to get a better deal from the government. But they realized that they need to mobilize public support in order to have better 
bargaining chip, and they started to sort of slowly, gradually shift its strategy from insider, insider tactics to outsider tactics, meaning that they tried to get a more uh, connection with other social movements. Um, so that was the story between early 2000 to 2008. And, and the peak was that, uh, the Ringo's participation of the Tento City of Jobless. But once the DPJ government uh, was born, Ringo switched the strategy again because Ringo thought that it, it's, not, it's not politically um, uh, clever to criticize DPJ government because DPJ government is so fragile. If you know, Ringo criticized the DPJ, DPJ government might not last long. So DPJ, uh, the Ringo uh, deliberately changed its tactics from outsider model to insider tactics. And uh, after the DPJ's government, you know, that the, there is a return of power ADP, but Ringo does not switch back to uh, the, uh, the outsider or the social mobilization model either. And at that time, the, uh, the, there are lots of lots of like a new grassroots social movements started to emerge, but there is a some sort of disjuncture between Ringo's strategy and those growing new type of social uh, mobilization. So the, I saw the picture of the ECTAS demonstration, which was just uh, a year ago. And this new type of social movement has been emerging. And they had a, some, some sort of a global connection with a, a minimum wage movement in Europe and United States. And these are a very, very small and grassroots movement called ECTAS. And lots of young generation began to participate in this group and, and calling for a minimum wage of uh, 15 Basically, so this is a sort of the global part of the global network of the, this, this sort of the, uh, the, the grassroots organizing. But the Ringo has a, so much distance from this type of uh, the group, and also DPJ and also mainstream parties do not have much uh, connection with uh, this type of uh, new uh, social groups, except the Communist Party. So, so there is a lot of uh, you know. Criticisms are mix, and there is uh, some roots, some uh, root of grassroots organizing, uh, but there is not much the center. Or like we are in Japan, we are lacking uh, like a, a sort of a core organizers, which put all the uh, uh, mobilization together. And I said that 2008 was a peak of social movement, but that's about in the, about the, in the labor uh, sphere. If you look at the peace movement, it's still going on, and the peak was uh, 2015, because the Abe government tried to, uh, to pass the security bill, which invited lots of criticism coming from peace movement. So lots of young generation and also old generation and labor unions got together in a protest against uh, the government's uh, stance vis-a-vis -vis the security bill. So that was the peak of the Japanese society's social mobilization. And out of this social mobilization, this type of actors or some new type of uh, labor uh, mobilization also emerged. But there are not much, as I said, a disjuncture between the electoral politics and, and a new type of social movement. So if you look at the labor uh, electoral politics, people very much disillusioned, and people don't see that uh, power alternation might take place in the future. So they have to just you know, accept uh, the economics, even though they might not be happy totally with it. So I just show you some three pictures about Japanese public support to a uh, new uh, growth model or new political economy. And this is a, uh, uh, the, uh, the data, like a, 
uh, recently came out, uh, Ipsops uh, conducted this study, and it's questioned about you know how much uh, the support the socialism is gaining. And in many, there are many there are about twenty questions. I mean, in many in many questions, actually, Japan is outlier. Interestingly, and Japan get the least support to socialism. Uh, this question is about generally asking the, the support of socialism, and Japan got uh, Japan's rate is only 21 percent. That's the least support to socialism, and uh, this is healthcare rights. And again, Japan get uh, the least support. Only 47 percent of people agree to uh, agree to think that the healthcare is the rights. And another uh, uh, question is about free education. So even though free education seems to me a valence issue, everybody wants to have free education, but uh, compared to other countries, uh, only 64% of people support free education. So uh, there are many uh, in the, uh, the, the opinion polls show that Japan is kind of outlier in terms of the support to social protection or socialism, and uh, including a young generation too. But if you look at the millennium generation in the United States and in, 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 in Europe, a young generation, you know, started to, to envision a new type of growth model, a new type of a political economy. But if you look at the opinion poll of the Japan, the young generation tend to be more conservative compared to older generations, and older generations tend to be more progressive. So we still don't know the good answer why the Japanese uh, young generation are so so much different from the young generation of other countries, but this uh, data shows that uh, we, 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 we don't have uh, the, the social background to support a new type of uh, political economy like income rate growth might not be something that not uh, appealing to uh, the Japanese public. Thank you very much. Okay, yeah. Uh, good evening, and also uh, thank you very much from my side for inviting me for organizing this, uh, this great um, conference and, and this event here. Um, yes, and I, 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 I'll, I'll speak about uh, Germany for, for a couple of minutes. Uh, before I um, address the points raised by Stefan Heinrich in, in introduction, uh, I, I would like to make some uh, preliminary remarks. The, the, the first, just to make sure we're all on the same page. I think that the German labor market is still strongly embedded in what has been called non-liberal uh, institutions. Uh, we still have uh, strict uh, dismissal regulation, generous unemployment benefits, also collective bargaining. It's just, just that not everybody in, in Germany benefits these days from these uh, institutions. And that, that's what Stefan Heinrich, based on Katie Thien, has referred to as uh, dualization. Uh, and that has to do with deliberate policy choices, but also just with structural changes in the German economy uh, through which parts of, of, of the labor market grow where some of those institutions are less strong uh, traditionally. Second preliminary remark is that the crisis with the big topic of this, um, uh, this event actually had little impact on the German uh, labor market. That's uh, partly because the policies of, of the government at the time worked to strongly subsidize working time reductions, uh, but it's also because companies in the affected sectors, mainly manufacturing, actually could rely on established mechanisms of internal uh, flexibility, like working time accounts, which were filled 
at the time, and that that greatly helped. Uh, and that means that the crisis, in my opinion, in Germany had little impact on, on labor uh, politics. Uh, and as you know, the, the crisis triggered much more debate in Germany about the situation in southern Europe, probably in a, in a rather improductive way. But that, that was the, the, the political debate, the crisis uh, uh, created in Germany. Uh, and then the third preliminary remark, uh, I think that the much more important event um, in terms of labor politics were the Hartz reforms in the early 2000s, a package of reforms intended to expand atypical employment, to expand low-wage employment uh, by the, the German Social Democrats uh, and the Green Party. And I think that if you want to understand current debates about uh, the labor market in Germany, also if you want to understand the dismal state the German Social Democrats are in, this is where to look. Okay, now I, I, I as, as I promised, I addressed the points raised by Stefan Heinrich. The first question uh, was whether uh, uh, liberalization has occurred uh, before 2008 and to what extent. And as I just said, the most fundamental uh, step uh, of, of liberalization, those were the, the hard reforms, uh, so that was in the early 2000s, clearly before uh, the, the, the crisis, but indeed uh, Germany has gone through various stages of uh, liberalization since the 1980s, uh, at least. And the, the usual uh, pattern is, 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 is that if unemployment goes up, then actually both major parties and the public agree that the labor market should become a bit more flexible, and then... Um, uh, the typical the, the typical pattern is that this deregulation is targeted at non-standard workers such as temporary workers, agency workers, uh, part-time workers. If then unemployment goes down again, uh, parties and the public they get sec second thoughts and then they re-regulate uh, a bit. But the reason why we had this strong liberal liberalizing uh, or dualizing reform package in the early 2000s was because the problem pressure was so intense, and as I said, the crisis did not produce such a, a problem pr pressure, and hence uh, did not lead really to uh, much uh, liberalization. Okay, the second point then uh, we want to discuss today is, and of course, what has changed after 2008, and I would say at first sight, uh, the, the policy discourses and the policies after 2008 have changed fundamentally compared to the early 2000s I just uh, talked about. We now observe quite a bit of a pushback against low-wage employment, atypical uh, employment. We heard about the introduction of a statutory minimum wage, which is a big thing in the German industrial relations tradition. There has been quite a bit of re-regulation of temporary agency work and more recently of, um, of, of temporary contracts, also a bit of a better... Uh, coverage in terms of unemployment insurance. I just don't think that this had much to do with the crisis, um, these steps, um, because it's, it's, it's based on this, this cyclical argument of labor market policy that I just sketched. I think Germany just happens to be in a typical re-regulation social policy expansion phase. Um, one could argue that it, based on the strong economy, Germany ha simply has excellent structural conditions to do this, both in terms of public finance and public uh, opinion. 
So the real question then uh, probably is whether uh, th th those those expansion, those those re-regulations, whether they're mainly uh, symbolic or whether they're substantive. One could make the point uh, that those are relatively cheap corrections of some of the most extreme forms of bad jobs. Uh, whereas if we look where the money spends uh, real money, where the government spends real money, sorry, um, which is uh, for pensions, it still pursues a bit of a more insider-oriented approach where those are rewarded who, who have goods already, mainly because uh, pension, uh, pension expansions are very often uh, coupled to long contribution records, like the reintroduction of, of early retirement, which has been prioritized over effectively uh, tackling old age poverty, which is much more a problem of outsiders with non-standard uh, work uh, biographies. Um, so one could argue that there's a strong anti-inequality, anti-dualization uh, symbolism to the very least, but one could have the concern that underneath this, a strong orientation towards uh, the, the, the more privileged workers uh, does continue. Uh, the third uh, point uh, is the question, did public sentiment um, change because of the crisis or after the the crisis, and here I would argue that uh, the, the, the German public is always a bit ambiguous about regulating the labor market and, and the welfare state. On the one hand, Germany clearly is uh, more of an egalitarian society where people have a preference to have low uh, difference in, in incomes and standards of, of living. On the other hand, ma many Germans do buy the, the more ordo-liberal narrative that the welfare state, that regulation might be a problem for growth and jobs. Um, and, and I think that's actually a narrative that gained credibility because of those hard reforms where uh, a strong uh, deregulation was followed by, 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 by a job uh, boom. Um, and then those, those ambiguous question, uh, preferences, they can uh, basically swing both ways depending on the business cycle. So that egalitarian policy is a bit of a luxury good for the, for the German uh, public that, again, it can afford in the, in the, in the present context. Um, and, and then it's not surprising that at the moment we observe this, this, this public opinion, it's more in favor of, of uh, re-regulation. Again, I just don't think it had uh, much to do with the crisis, which I would like to illustrate with a simple descriptive graph. Here you see uh, Germans have been asked whether they uh, consider economic conditions by and large as fair or unfair. You see a strong growth of uh, uh, unfairness perceptions but you, I also indicated with those lines uh, the timing, and you see that the strong growth precedes the crisis and actually starts at the time when the hard reforms are implemented so that it's on a very high level uh, already when, when the uh, uh, crisis hits. Be that as it may, that is something that, of course, is important uh, for, for policymakers uh, in Germany um, to, to consider. Um, the fourth point um, raised in the introductory slides um, was the question whether we observe a stronger role of the state since uh, 2008. Um, and I, I think uh, maybe it's important here that for, for many people the crisis actually seems to have uh, confirmed the viability of the German model of industrial relations because it seemed that works councils and unions uh, you know, played a productive role in saving jobs during the crisis through the internal flexibility I mentioned through which uh, moderation. Now it is true that the state plays a stronger role in wage setting, particularly through the minimum wage. Interestingly, uh, 
at, at the moment, we have a debate where the social democrats are actually pushing for a more political determination of the, of the minimum wage instead of leaving it to the tripartite commission, which would mean or is in, you know, intended to, to lead to a much higher um, uh, minimum wage, potentially, if, if, if they can get this through, which is doubtful. Um, but again, also this, I don't think, is a consequence of the crisis. It, it is a, uh, particularly a consequence of the weakness, traditional weakness, of German unions in some parts uh, of the growing uh, service economy. Okay, so here are my conclusions um, for, for, for uh, uh, Germany. Um, I think I made it clear that I don't think the crisis played a big role in labor politics. Uh, anyway, we do have this window of opportunity where governments have a lot of money because of the economy and a lot of public support uh, to expand labor market policies, to expand uh, social policies, policies. But in Germany, as in many other countries, the public is not very clear about what it wants, you know, what's the best way to uh, achieve more, more equality, which then means that politicians have a lot of agency uh, in, in selling uh, things as egalitarian policies to the electorate. Those could be pensions for male insiders. It could be uh, human capital-oriented active labor market policies. Uh, this is very hard to, to predict by theory and, and contingent upon uh, political discourses. And, and I explained that at the moment it seems that a lot of uh, uh, money is spent for, for pensions. In any case, I would uh, dare to make a very tentative um, prediction based on the history of German labor market policy since the 1980s. It's quite likely that uh, this window of opportunity will close with the end of the business cycle. And as soon as unemployment goes up again, we see a reversal in uh, public sentiment and, and the policy approach. And chances are that um, non-standard workers, other vulnerable groups, will be uh, the first to target. And then what we call dualization will continue in one way or another. Thank you very much for your attention. I'm very glad to take part in this roundtable. I haven't got any uh, slides to show you. Because I've shown too many slides already about uh, 30 minutes ago. Um, There's an interesting question uh, that was asked by uh, Stefan, uh, and I thought there's some sort of an irony uh, when you consider the case of France. Um, let me go back to 2007 when uh, President Nicolas Sarkozy was elected. He was elected on a program of quite radical, especially for France, quite radical neoliberal reforms. Shortly after I've been being uh, uh, elected, he commissioned um, a, a report on the necessary reforms uh, for uh, fostering growth uh, in France. Uh, the man in charge of uh, um, supervising the report was an old eyed uh, of uh, Mitterrand called Jacques Attali, and the, the report in question is known as the Attali Report. Um, and uh, probably the idea of Nicolas Sarkozy was to uh, take advantage of these series of propositions in order to launch a movement of radical neoliberalization of the economy, including, of course, uh, the uh, uh, employment relationship. 
but included also the financial sector. And in fact, uh, the timing couldn't have been worse because shortly after uh, the report was advocating uh, a massive deregulation of the financial sector, uh, the financial crisis hit on uh, pretty badly. And this led Nicolas Sarkozy to make a turnaround that only true politicians are capable of doing, certainly not academics, uh, um, which shows their inferiority. Um, uh, and he made a famous speech in the south of France, in the, uh, the town of Toulon, where he said uh, uh, the era of uh, the market being always right is over. And, of course, he sent the uh, Attali report uh, in a drawer of his uh, uh, office, of his um, uh, work table, and uh, no, nobody heard from the rapport Attali uh, again after that. Um, and, in fact, it sort of uh, prevented uh, the... the <laughs> plan of flexicurity that he had in mind, like trading in more flexibility on the labour market against increased security, but it would be some very particular case of security. Uh, he was very generous on the security side, so he would, he would uh, uh, enable more flexibility in, in by uh, actually suppressing the difference between uh, fixed-term uh, employment contracts and open-ended uh, employment contracts. But in, in uh, trading in for that was uh, the, um, uh, the, well, the fact that the um, unemployment indemnity would be 90% of the uh, uh, previous wage, which is very generous. And it was 90% of the previous wage until the unemployed has found a new job. But, of course, there is a call of snags in this uh, arrangement, which is that um, uh, this arrangement would no longer be valid after the unemployed person refuses a second job offer. Uh, so use some sort of, you know, pseudo-security uh, and more some sort of repressive uh, 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 action in order to put people back to job. But in any case, it didn't work, and he ditched the uh, plans for flexicurity. Um, by the way, do you know who actually... So Atali was in charge of the famous uh, neoliberal report I just mentioned. Do you know who drafted it? The man who held uh, the pen. Uh, the man who held the pen was a young um, uh, uh, civil servant in the Ministry of Finance. Um, then he left the Ministry of Finance like so many of his peers and he became an investment banker. Uh, he was an investment banker and he was involved in mergers and acquisition where he made a small fortune. After having been an investment banker, he was called by the new president, the Socialist Party's uh, number one, um, François Hollande. So he became the top aide for uh, economic policy of François Hollande. Then he became the minister of uh, the uh, economy of François Hollande later on. And then he resigned from his position in order to join the presidential race. And he was elected in 2017 as the new French president. His name is, of course, Emmanuel Macron. Uh, so just to give you an idea of what is going on in France, it's very ironic that uh, when you consider the question that uh, Stefan asked, that no, the, um, uh, the crisis did not fundamentally change uh, the liberalisation path in France, and if you want to see a change, it would be more an acceleration of the liberalisation of the French labour market uh, in connection with, uh, um, uh, for the moment, a modest retrenchment of the uh, social protection system, but things are not going to stay like that for uh, too long, I think, and the next uh, target of uh, the new government is uh, the pension system, and it's not going to be an increase in uh, pensions or an increase uh, of uh, social protection in, um, in general. This being said, uh, I could say the same thing as uh, um, 
uh, what uh, Paul just said about uh, Germany, uh, you should not uh, infer from what I'm saying that France had turned into, let's say, a neoliberal model like the United States. Uh, it's, it still is uh, a non-liberal uh, model of capitalism, but uh, the gradient uh, is not going in the direction, it's going in the direction of uh, turning it into uh, um, uh, a neoliberal model. So when you see uh, uh, statistics uh, comparing, for instance, the level of inequality in France compared to, say, Great Britain or, um, or the US, or even, you know, the, the, the wage, the, the, the figure that uh, Marie just uh, uh, shows on, on wages, you see, well, well, France doesn't seem to be going so, so bad after all. But this is more the effect of a structure which is not uh, which has not totally crumbled uh, but is a structure which is endangered by the current uh, movement and uh, uh, I won't describe in detail the, uh, the uh, uh, French socio-economic model let me just give you uh, uh, some of these uh, uh, main um, uh, character characteristics uh, when it c uh, concerns the employment uh, uh, relationship it was shown uh, by Stefan on the first slide, you've got a very high coverage of collective bargaining agreements. Uh, and the reason for that is that it is mandatory by law for a, a, an industry to adopt a collective agreement that has been signed by a sufficient number of unions and employers association, etc. So actually it's legal protection. It hasn't got something to do, even, even if a firm doesn't want to sign it, the fact that within the industry, uh, one firm has sufficiently representative and union sufficiently representatives have signed them then it applies to the whole industry which explains why uh, the coverage is, is so high uh, close to um, uh, close to 100% actually and you could say well this is very good and well because uh, if uh, the employment relationship is uh, protected by um, uh, uh, collective bargaining agreements uh, uh, everything should be going well especially since there is another thing characterising the French employment system called the favourability uh, uh, principle which I've talked about uh, like uh, 30 minutes ago and the idea of favourability principle is that uh, firms you, you can have decentralised bargaining at a firm level, they could sign agreements the thing they can't do is to sign agreements which uh, specify conditions which are less beneficial to uh, employees than the collective agreement of the level uh, uh, higher up and of course less than uh, the uh, uh, protection uh, provided by legal uh, texts. Uh, meaning that only uh, uh, improvement in, uh, for instance, protection, employment protection or working hours or whatever can actually be signed at the, um, uh, at the firm level. So you could say, well, it really is uh, a guarantee against the liberalisation of the um, uh, uh, employment re relationship, and it was, but it no longer is for a reason that a series of legal changes have actually uh, weakened this uh, uh, favourability principle, which is on the way out at, at the very moment. So, I mean, a series of laws since the 2000s, and especially since the 2010s, and especially since 2016 or 2017, have actually made it possible for, you know, large varieties of cases to actually have a liberalisation, uh, a, a firm level collective agreement which is uh, not uh, as beneficial as the uh, uh, collective agreement of the uh, uh, industry level, for instance. Um, there is the uh, problem of minimum wage, for instance. If you look at uh, the minimum wage, you could say, well, the, the level of minimum wage in France is 
reasonably high. It's not the highest in Europe, but it's certainly not is the lowest. It's among the highest. And you could say, well, everything is, is, is okay, especially since, as uh, Stephen men mentioned it, uh, President Macron has uh, said that uh, this minimum wage would be increased, uh, as Stephen said. Except, no, he didn't say that. He didn't say that the wage would increase. He said that the people who are at the minimum wage would get 100 euros more, but the wage is not increased. What is increased is a, pre, a, a, a benefit uh, um, a, a work benefit, an in-work benefit, a topic which was addressed uh, uh, earlier on, uh, which is going to be increased uh, by 100 euros. It's not actually that much because it was legally uh, meant to increase by um, uh, 20 uh, plus 20 plus 30 euros over the course of uh, 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 three years, meaning that actually the uh, extra benefit that uh, Macron gave is only, uh, let me think, is only seven, uh, 30 euros. So it's not like he was very generous. And the thing is, uh, it's not going to cost anything to the employers. So it's not a wage increase. So who is going to pay? Well, who is going to pay is the uh, uh, taxpayer. Meaning that uh, either you increase taxes, but this is not uh, the, uh, um, the movement which is dominating in France at the moment, um, and no longer, or you actually cut down on exp an expenditure, which is probably the most likely uh, uh, thing uh, which is going to happen. Um, so um, flexibility has increased. Um, I could give many details, but I'm not going to because it would be too long. Uh, the thing is that one should not uh, uh, think that flexibility increasing liberalisation means deregulation. Actually, you had a series of regulation in France, especially after the Lehman crisis or in the most recent years, which actually are enacted by uh, a <coughs> legal text. So it's a case of... Uh, it, there is re-regulation in a way, but it's a, a flexibility enhancing re-regulation or a liberalizing re-regulation. Uh, uh, so deregulation is a misnomer, really. Um, uh, yeah, what, um, uh, yeah, another structural characteristic, and I've mentioned that before, but let me mention it again. Uh, another structural characteristic of the employment relationship in France is that unions are very weak. They're not very representative. 11% uh, of the uh, uh, French France, the level of the whole country, uh, and probably close to between 6 and 8% in the private sector. So basically they're not representative at all when you, when you think about the bulk of the labour force. Uh, and they're divided, and since they're divided, their division uh, used to... Uh, there is a discourse saying that so the fact that you would have uh, several competing unions would lead to a, every union trying to overbeat the other in the demands, uh, but exactly the opposite is taking place. And the, fact, the, the thing is that unions have been systematically underbidding uh, uh, each other in, uh, uh, in the pursuit of the um, uh, favourite uh, position of the state and the employers' association in order to bargain. Uh, also, I mean, unions being very weak, they're very poor when it comes to actually the uh, contributions paid by their members, meaning that they rely very much on public money. And so there is a reason for being the favourite uh, partner of the state, which is that uh, probably you're in a better position to get uh, public money. So all this contributes to the fact that unions in particular and intermediate bodies in general are not very important in France, especially since, uh, uh, since Macron uh, um, uh, and probably since Holland as well, uh, the policy has been to uh, actively neglect them, push them out of the way in order to... Um, 
uh, in order to push on those neoliberal reforms. It was also an idea of Sarkozy and his, his regret when he left office in 2012. He said, I shouldn't have paid so much attention to intermediate bodies. I should have gone directly to the people and tried to push on my reforms, pretending that I was actually uh, arguing that uh, those reforms would be uh, beneficial. So actually what Sarkozy wanted to do, Hollande did it a bit and Macron did it a lot. Um, the result of that, well, we all know the result of that. You just have to, at least in Europe, I don't know in Japan, you just have to uh, uh, watch the news in order to know the result. You've got massive protests, uh, uh, which is not very organised, and for good reasons, considering what I've just said about uh, the uh, disappearance of intermediate bodies. Uh, a movement of protests against the economic policy in general, uh, which started with a minor issue, uh, in, at least in... in uh, apparently a minor issue, which is not, not even longer, no longer discussed in the, in, in the protest movement. Um, and it's not organised. And I think there is a, a similarity with uh, what Mary said about uh, this anti-poverty uh, movement. You've got no leader, no organisation, etc. Meaning you've got no articulated demands. You've got a, a series of demands which go in many directions. And those demands tend to be very basic. It's mostly m more money in order to have a better standard of living. But it's not something which is organised like, for instance... Um, when a, a, a very important labour flexibility law was enacted in 2016, you would have also a very important protest movement taking place in, in France and in Paris in particular. But it was very articulated. It was mostly middle-class people, educated middle-class people who protested against the neoliberal evolution of French society in, part, in general and the employment relationship in particular. This time, it's not the case. It's more like, you know, as I've said, very basic demands uh, and, and, and a level of hunger which apparently prevents uh, the emergence of, uh, 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 you know, a, a questioning of the general direction that the French socio-economic model has been taking for about uh, one uh, decade. So as a conclusion, um, I would say, um, um, so as you know, you've got riot, different uh, riots in, in, in France at, at the moment not so much organised around the issue of the employment relationship for the reasons I've just mentioned and uh, earlier this week uh, President Macron made a few announces uh, um, like uh, the, the famous benefit of 100 euros and so on and so forth and he pronounced a sentence which has got a double meaning and, uh, and, and it's funny because it's a, it's not very clear whether he understands or he understood the double meaning of, of, this, uh, uh, of this sentence. He said, addressing the nation and, and, and the people writing, I suppose, he says, and I say in French, mon seul souci c'est vous. And you can translate this sentence in two ways. It could be, my only concern is you, or my only worry is you. 